Hello, Connecticut, and welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. The title uh, basically says it all. I'm Nancy Barrow, and I will be delving into this new state program and how it can help you and your family. This podcast will give you information you should know about Connecticut Paid Leave and maybe just a little bit more. Connecticut Paid Leave brings peace of mind to your home, family, and workplace. Welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. Hi, and thanks for listening. On this episode, I am talking with our fearless leader, yes, the CEO of Connecticut Paid Leave, that would be Andrea Barton-Reeves. And I feel like you need to know a little bit about the woman who runs the program to know the program a little bit. So you bring legal, insurance, community, you bring so much experience to CT paid leave. You really do. Um, I could go on and on about your jobs. You're a CEO of Hark. Do you think that that job at Hark really prepared you for Connecticut paid leave? I actually think all the jobs I've had have prepared me for what I'm doing right now. Well, you've had a lot of them. It's true. I've actually been working since I was 13. And I'm not 13 or anything close to that. (laughs) Well, what did you do when you were 13? I was a total nerd. So I spent all my time at the library. And so this was in the, you know, like the early 70s. So people can do their math and figure out how old I am. But I was, it was in the 70s and I loved to read and I was always in the library. So the librarians just put me to work. I'm sure it was totally illegal (laughs) at the time, you know. But I would be there every single day. It was the place I went after school, and I would do my homework, and then I would just read voraciously. I would read anything I could get my hands on, because I like to learn about a lot of different things. And then I would start to just put the books away, because I also like to organize. So these things have always just been with me. So the librarians used to just rely on me to just come in and do things. And organize them. them. And organize them, put away the books. And after a while, they would leave a cart for me. And like those were with my name on it. And like those were my books to put away. They would do those things for me. So I think I've always enjoyed working and being out in the community. But I knew when I was seven that I wanted to be a lawyer. I just knew it. It was just, I didn't, don't even really think I knew what it was. I just. Yeah, where did you yeah. hear about being a lawyer? Like, it, was it in your family that you would talk about there law? Are, there are no lawyers in my family. They're all medical professionals or engineers. So I don't know, but I knew, and I just denounced it. I remember that at being at the kitchen table one morning and just telling my parents that I wanted to be a lawyer. And they just sort of looked at me as if to say, how do you even know what that is? But I didn't know, but it was clearly what I was destined to do. That is so interesting because at seven, I think I wanted to be a ballerina. You know? I, yeah, I wanted that too. <laughs> Again, I had lots of interests. So. You probably read about being a ballerina. <laughs> I probably did. I probably read somewhere about being a lawyer. I probably did because I I read well above my grade level. So that's I amazing. So I probably read it somewhere and then decided that that's what I wanted to do. But I've always had this sense of compassion and caring about other people. So I was the kid in school that would be the friend of the person that people were bullying. That's just the kind of person that that I was. So when I got out of college, I worked for Chubb Insurance, which is like one of the top insurance companies in the world, actually. And it wasn't what I thought I was going to do. 
I was an English major. I knew that I would probably work for a little while and then go to law school. That was always my plan, but it was only like a year or so, I thought. But I really enjoyed working at Chubb. It, it really helped to hone a lot of skills. It was very structured, very corporate. You know, it still is. And I was there in the early 90s. And even then, it was very traditional with respect to the roles of men and women. I'll never forget, I had a friend, Marcel, who started working at Chubb. And she came in one day in this magnificent pantsuit, and all the women were aghast. And they called her down to HR, and they gave her this long lecture. But she was very smart, and she just said, you you can't do that because I'm a woman. You can't tell me that I can't wear pants because I'm a woman. And if you insist on doing that, then there'll be other issues. And then before you knew it, so it was like she alone changed the whole culture of the organization oh, wow, by just sort of that standing is phenomenal. out. Yeah, so she was she was extraordinary. But I think that working at Chubb and then having my own law practice and working at a large firm in New York and then here in Connecticut and then moving from that to working at Hark, which I worked there for 10 years, which was eight years longer than I thought I would be there. Really? It is, yeah. I went uh, in a really serendipitous way. I, I actually had my own practice before then, and I was representing children almost exclusively in high-conflict custody cases and uh, child protection work is really emotionally challenging work, which I loved, but it was very hard. And I had done it for a long time, and I was ready to do something else. And I was just expressing this to my husband, saying to him, it's been hard. And I was getting increasingly difficult cases because I was fortunate enough that judges really had a lot of confidence in me and the work that I would do. So they would always kind of give me the really hard, complex cases. But it wears on you emotionally over time. I would imagine. To do that kind of work. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't really think I want to I do this anymore. But I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. My son was young. He was seven, almost eight. And I didn't want anything that was so consuming. But I still wanted something that allowed me to help people. So my husband ran into the then CEO of Hark at uh, the Nathan's Hot Dog Store that was in East Hartford, Connecticut. And they had known each other, and they struck up a conversation, and his name was Steve. And Steve said to my husband's name is Mark, you know, I'm looking for someone who has this sort of a background in employment law, which I did, and understands people and is compassionate and can do the work that I need to have done as the vice president of administration because mine is retiring and I'm just essentially getting people who just don't want to be in large law firms anymore, but they don't have really the right combination of skill sets. And so my husband says, oh, this is perfect. My wife would love this. She just told me that she's ready to transition into something else. But I didn't even know what the something else was. So he comes home with this business card and he says to me, this is your next job. And I'm thinking... (laughs) You were supposed to just go get a snack with Parker. <laughs> you were not supposed to go out and find a, a job. job. But, right. but, but I'll take the card. But I took the card. Right. And it turns out that it, I guess it was meant to be. And that seems to be the way that my career has unfolded. Some people have said, well, you know, how do you find these amazing jobs and how does this, how does this really work? And for me, it is almost a... Um, I don't really know how to explain it. It's it's almost a journey that unfolds exactly as I need it. So I needed it at the time, and I had a sense of what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to work 80 hours a week, and I really didn't want to handle really complex custody cases anymore. I didn't want to do any of that. And I wanted to be in a larger organization because I'd worked by myself for a long time, and I found that really isolating. 
so I decided that I would apply. And in the meantime, I had three other friends who called and said, I saw this fantastic job on Indeed. I think it'd be perfect for you. It was the exact same job. So I figured, okay, I'll give it a try. So I apply and I write to Steve and I send my resume and I wait and I think, well, maybe I'll just get an interview. I had no investment in it at all. And then I get a letter that says, thank you for applying, but no thank you, which I found to be really odd because Mm. I thought, well, he's the CEO and he asked me to apply. So wouldn't I at least get a chance to talk to someone about whether or not I would be a good fit? But I didn't worry about it. And I just went on about my business. And then I'm on the vineyard with my family, Martha's Vineyard, one of my favorite places in the world. And I'm checking my voicemail, and I'm still getting calls from parents who are accusing the other of violating their visitation agreements. And oh, my goodness. So I said, well, it's par for the course. It's okay. And then there's a call that says, hi, Andrea. This is, I'll just call him Bob. This is Bob from Hark. And I know you got a letter. Mm, we're sorry about that. <laughs> kind of wondering <laughs> if you're still willing to talk to us because we'd really love to chat with you. I'm thinking. So I told my family this story and to a person, no, who who would talk to people after they do? What yeah. kind of places? Yeah, why? you gave you, me a rejection letter right. and then you're like, oh, wait, 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 hold on. We send it to the wrong person or? No, I think uh, I can't. And I said to, because Bob ended up being my boss, one of the yeah. best bosses I'd ever had. And I said to him, so what was that conversation like when someone had to decide that they sent someone this letter and then they had to decide that they needed to call them back? Right? <laughs> said, that must have been fun. <laughs> and how did you draw the short straw to make that call? I said, I can only imagine. I said, I bet you were relieved when I didn't answer the phone. He said, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I don't even know what that conversation would be like. No. Right. No, no. But I didn't say no. I said, okay. And I said to my family, people make mistakes. You never know. This could be the opportunity for me. It's not as easy as you think to make these kinds of decisions Mm -hmm. about because sometimes people appear to be fantastic on paper and then you get them in front of you and and you have a completely different experience. And sometimes the opposite is true. But you don't really know. And that's fine. And they're essentially in a really difficult place because the woman who had the job was retiring and she was very firm about her retirement date. And sometimes when you're under those kinds of circumstances, it's it's hard to make space to make the, you know, the, the, next, si- the decision. next decision. Sure. Right. So I'm explaining all this to them. And, and there was there was more than a fair amount of skepticism, I would say, amongst my family. But that was okay. That was okay. So I went. And it was I can't even describe it. It it from the moment I stepped in the door, I knew that was the right place. Did you know what to do? Like you walked in the door. There was a very steep learning curve for me and learning about the different types of intellectual disabilities that there are and the and how it affects families. But what I learned in doing that work is that what I had done for the last 8 or 9 years before that in representing people and representing children almost exclusively is that these two populations were populations that didn't have a voice mm-hmm. where, where their families spent a lot of time trying to be seen and heard and acknowledged so when you have a child that has a disability there are lots and lots of assumptions that are made about those children right and they're in, and they're not great and they're all about limitation and exclusion And the same is true for families that are involved in the child protection system. There's lots of assumptions that are made about families that get themselves in child protection. But those of us who did that work for a long time will tell you this. 
It takes one phone call to DCF to change your life. Right. Just one. It doesn't have to be founded. It doesn't have, have any basis in fact. One call and you are down the child protection rabbit hole. And that's it. So it helps you to not be judgmental about families. So I learned that in the eight years that I did that, eight or nine years, that every family has a story. And they are stories that you can't imagine and stories that are generational. And so the idea is to put yourself in their place as you're doing that work so that you can really have that understanding of what it feels like, but still be a really strong advocate. So that's what I did. And that's what I learned uh, at Hark in the time when I was there. So to become the CEO, uh, that also was not in my plan. I had just planned to, to be there and until I wasn't. And I don't know what that was. My son was eight. He, that By that time, he was eight. And like, ah, I'll be here for a couple of years. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'll go do something else. Let's get him into middle school, high right. school. That is yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. My plan was to get him through elementary school. And then when he got into middle school, I'd look to do something else. But it turned out to be an environment that was so conducive to raising kids. It was extremely family-friendly. I could bring him with me everywhere. I could, I started out with a four-day work week that never materialized. So theoretically it was, but I could use it if I needed to. And that was helpful too. And then the CEO announced his retirement and the board asked me to apply because I hadn't. And I decided to. And then I had decided I wouldn't. And then I had a discussion with a friend who said to me, you should never say no to yourself. And she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. And so she said, let them tell you no, rather than you just taking yourself out of the running. And so I did. And it, it, so in answer to your question about what do you, what do you know how to do and what you don't, what don't you know how to do, you don't, there's no CEO school. There's no place where you go where you, they teach you what to do. They don't teach you about budgets and managing people or, you know, understanding multiple stakeholders, any of those things. You really learn trial by through trial by fire. But I realized pretty quickly I needed some help. So I got some CEO mentors and I took a lot of executive training. A lot. (laughs) 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 On everything that you could possibly possibly imagine. Um, And I took a lot of executive training. And I I know in retrospect, I made my fair share of mistakes as as a first-time CEO. I do know that. And I learned from them. So I I think the one thing that you want to know about being a leader is it's always it's important to be humble too and to be transparent and you know and to and to be human I think is important is important too. Yeah. So all of those things. And I enjoyed it but it was challenging at the same time because you're responsible for people's lives. They're living in group homes 24 hours a day. You're administering medication in their day programs and every single person that works there is a person that you're eventually personally responsible for. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot on you And all you know the, time. the story and the family. You do. And... and then you're watching people age and you know, they get sick. And then people with intellectual disabilities often have comorbidities. So they have other uh, disabilities and, and other health vulnerabilities that are related to their disability. That's not uncommon. So you're, you know, you'll be watching 40 and 50-year-old people die because they because of the health condition that's related to their disability. And that's hard. And then you're comforting families and it's and then you're also interacting often with a healthcare system that doesn't always understand or um, 
knows how to show the the right degree of respect to people with disabilities. They'll speak to the caregiver rather than talk to the person themselves. And those are always things that you're constantly navigating. But I very much enjoy being an advocate for people with disabilities. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. And again, I don't have anyone in my family that has a a, a disability or or an intellectual or physical disability. But it just felt like it was the right place to be for me. And then I felt it was time for me to do something else again. It just the sense that my work here is done. Right. And it was time for me to go. But I really wasn't sure where. Again, just I should probably be more planful, but I wasn't. <laughs> just thought. Well, it seems like your life sort of planned out for you exactly, anyway. Exactly. Right. You know? And so when I started to lean into that, I realized what I what I really needed to do was just be very clear about what it was I wanted to do next and then let the opportunity unfold from that. Mm-hmm. And I learned that from going to Hark because when I went there, I, I literally, Nancy, I made a list that said the next job I want has to be in a large organization, not work 80 hours a week, give me the flexibility to be a mom, you know, allow me to help more people, teach me something I haven't learned before. And I'd make this list and I'd put it on my bedroom mirror and on the refrigerator. And I would just look at it and I would just think, oh, you know. We'll see how it goes. You know, we'll just see how this, whether or not it unfolds. And it did in ways that I could never imagine. And the same was true for coming to the paid leave authority. And there are times when I sit back and I think to myself, I have a job that did not exist in 2019. I imagine many people will have it after me, but it did But you're the first. But I am the first. Yeah. You have a lot of territory that you covered. Yes, I did. <laughs> you covered I did. a lot of territory. I did cover a lot of territory, but I have loved every minute of it. How did that conversation with your family go when the opportunity to come be the CEO of a startup state program, mm-hmm. how did that go with your family? Well, it depended on who you spoke to. <laughs> so my husband said, you absolutely should do this. You've been at Hark a long time. You've done some really great things there, but it's it's time for new leadership there. And you know, it's and you've you've said that for a while, so it's probably time for you to go. And I felt like I had done as much as I could and it was really time to have someone else uh, pick up the mantle. And then I had others that said really close family and some really close friends that were I think just afraid for me and really concerned because it was new. And I had one friend say, they don't have anything. There's no office. There's, she said, they don't have pencils. There's nothing. <laughs> How are you going to go? Not a thing. From everything, because we were in a 60,000 square foot building in an agency that was almost 70 years old, to nothing. I said, well, I don't really see it as nothing. I see it as unlimited potential. And so I think it's all about your perspective. And she said, see, that's you. That's you. That's how you see things. That's why That's why you're going to do it. She said, you're, I, she said, I don't think it's a great idea, but I know you're going to do it anyway. So I just, I'm just registering my concern. And then you got the job, and then the pandemic hit. That's exactly right. 11 days later. How do you navigate hiring people, not in person, on Zoom? I was thinking about this, even with our interview that we had. How do you really gauge a person? Well, it's interesting because it almost works the way reality TV works. In that, in the beginning, the person may have a specific persona, 
But then when you talk for a while, they forget that they're on camera. They forget that they're in a box, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, then they just become themselves. So mm. I would just wait for a while and just let people start talking and then ask different questions. And I know that when you and I spoke, that's one of the things that you said, that I'd ask questions that people don't normally ask in interviews. I said that you asked very tough questions. Yeah. And they were. And you'd ha- I really had to sit for a moment, which made me uncomfortable. And I really had to think about my answer and my response. Right. But that's part of the process, though. Right. It is. It's seeing, well, where does she sit in the discomfort? Is she just going to kind of fill it in with a song and dance? Or, you know, is that how she deals with stress? What's going to happen here? Right. And then you get to really learn about the person in just in how they respond to the questions. And it's not a trick. It's not a way to... uh, you know, to try to make people feel uncomfortable. It's not deliberate. It's that I really want to get a sense of the person that we'll be working with because it's not just about me. I feel like I carry a responsibility to not just hire a person who's a subject matter expert, but to hire the whole person because everyone else on the team is going to be working with the whole person. And they may be working with someone who's highly competent, but very challenging. And their focus won't be on the competency. Their focus will always be on the challenge. And that wears on you day after day after day. So I really felt a responsibility to make sure that everyone who came on the team was not only very good at what they did, but understood that they were, they had a responsibility to everyone else on the team to, to be their best personally and professionally. That's why I asked the questions, so that I could really see. And then... And it was telling because some people I interviewed were not great, right? Yeah. They were fantastic on paper, but as we spoke to them, I could see where the challenges would be. And then with others, maybe some were more prepared and had more experience on paper, but they had a willingness to learn. They understood that we were here to really support people and serve people, that we were taking really precious dollars from people's paychecks, and we had a responsibility to use that money in the best way possible. I feel that no one wants to disappoint you, Andre. (laughs) (laughs) And I really hope that that's not because they're afraid. No, 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 no. I feel, no. And that's one of the things, as I I call you our fearless leader, this year alone, the awards that you've had, the NAACP 100 most influential blacks in Connecticut. You were recognized by the Hartford Business Journal as their power 25 in healthcare. Um, And you became a fellow uh, for women leaders in the world, not Connecticut, not United States, but the world. I feel that you make people want to be better because of who you are. That is really kind of you. But but I really feel the team feels that about you. I mean, those are only some of the thing, awards that you won. That was just in 2021. I feel that you lead this team with compassion. And that's why I went back and I said, is that what is, is that what Hark taught you? But I feel like since you were 13 reading books, you probably have been compassionate your whole life and wanting to make change because this program, Connecticut Paid Leave, makes a difference in people's lives. It does. And... So maybe I didn't answer your question about Hark completely truthfully in that it taught me that paid family and medical leave is really essential to people. I encountered so many people at Hark who are 
they fit into that category of Alice, and you and I were talking about that the other day. So the United Way has a report that's called the Alice Report, and it's for those in our community who uh, fit into a category that's it's an acronym. It's Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. So it's really our folks who are working but still really finding it hard to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Every day. And I worked with a lot of people who would have been described as Alice people. And that's hard mm-hmm. when you're trying to take care of yourself and your family. And there's there's just lots of constraints on how much you can earn for any number of reasons. And the demands continue to grow. And I used to say to my senior team at Hark, when they would be really hard on our support team, you don't have to work for an hour to buy a pillow. So you're, I'm making $11.40 an hour. And that's not enough to buy shoes for your kid. I have to work all day long, all day long, to buy a $75 pair of sneakers. And sneakers cost about $150. So when you think about having to work two days to buy one child a fairly decent pair of shoes, then maybe you'd understand that life is different for you and me, right, who have salaries with commas in them, right, as opposed to people who have to work three jobs to have salaries with commas in them. And that's when I learned. And people were making really draconian choices about coming to work when they were sick or someone that they loved was very sick because they couldn't afford to stay home and be without any income. Because family medical leave has existed in the state up as of last year was an all or nothing proposition. Sure. Either you worked for an employer where you met all of these criteria, you'd worked the number of hours, you you know, you've been there long enough or you've accrued enough vacation time and it was never long enough for you to really have anything. And if you worked multiple jobs, there is no way you're going to meet those standards. So that's why this is different. So when I had the chance to impact the lives of a million people, I don't know how you say no to that. There's a big burden. Yeah. It's a pretty overwhelming when you think about what this program does and who it helps. Right. We know that people really need this and they've been waiting. And the stories we hear about people who've been waiting and what they've put off can be heartbreaking. So we're glad to be present for them. There's some joyous occasions. I mean, we have bonding leave, right, for people who are adding to their family, whether it's by birth or adoption or fostering. They're all beautiful reasons. They are. To take 12 weeks of paid leave if you can get it. That's right. And not every state has that. No. So right now, we were the eighth state, and I think there's up to 11. But there are 50 states in the union, so we still have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. Right. So there might be 11 states in the District of Columbia, and everyone else just still has to wait to see what happens in their individual states or if something happens at the federal level. Well, our governor has certainly said you came on time and on under budget. Was that something that you calculated that you wanted? Or is that just something, again, in Andrea's world that really just happened because that's what you wanted? No, that happened very deliberately. Okay. And I, I'm a planner. That's just my nature. And I remember going to my second interview, and I was on vacation prior to that, and I was on a cruise. But my mind just kept going and going and going. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I can't go back to the second interview with just generalized ideas about how this process works. I'm the kind of person I have to put it on paper. So I planned out the whole first year of what we would be doing for every single, like, finance, administration, outreach, and get the entire year. 
But I felt like it was just, I just had to get it down on mm-hmm. paper. So, it, no, it was very deliberate because I really wanted to deliver it on time. I had no idea that a pandemic was coming. This is the December of 2019. Well, and I know that you've spoken with Washington State and our neighbors in Massachusetts. Did they did they offer you any advice that you actually implemented? They offered us a lot of advice that we absolutely implemented. The first, I would say, is Washington State said, if there's anything that you can do, try to open the application process before you open the process when benefits are available, because it will really help you to tamp down the demand of having to do both in the month that benefits become available. And I think that was outstanding advice, and we did our best to follow it, and I, I think we see the results. Yeah, right. absolutely. So that was good. And then the second one was from Massachusetts who said to us, whatever you do, make sure that you have a great relationship with third-party administrators because they handle so much of the day-to-day payroll work for large employers. You need to really make sure you build a strong relationship with them for this to work well. And we did that. And I think that also was excellent advice that we we heeded, and it, it also made a difference. Have other states who are trying to launch, have they contacted you for advice? They have. I bet they have. They have. They are. Uh, they are. They're really wondering how we did this. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of people are wondering. A lot of naysayers are wondering how you did this. They are. A lot. A lot of people on. I think on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the issue, everywhere yeah. are just wondering how we managed to launch this program, which is complex, on time, under budget, in the middle of a pandemic. We did it primarily by being very planful, by having the right team members in place who were all equally committed to its success, and by continuously reinventing ourselves as obstacles would arise and unexpected challenges would come our way. We would just take a step back and say, okay, well, that didn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Let's try this again. Let's try this a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's the journey of a startup. You You think you have it, and then you realize not so much. And then you have to go back and make the whole thing work again. But because we had a very strong foundation in what we needed to accomplish, those opportunities to step back and look again at at what we were doing didn't mean complete reinvention. It really meant refinement. And I think that made a big difference. And so what advice have you given to these other states that are trying to start up this program? Yeah. I've told other states that they need to start early. It will take a lot longer than you think that our plan was to partner with subject matter experts who really could do the operational work and that the oversight experts sit in the organization as opposed to our taking on the entire thing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And for some for some organizations, some states, I should say, that's possible because their statute permits them to do that, but others have a very statu- different statutory structure, so they probably have to do things a bit differently. But the one thing that I told all of them is that you're not hiring people, you're building a team. So to really, really, you know, take your time and the larger your team gets, you really want to make sure that everyone still remains engaged and that the people who emerge as the leaders of those teams, you want to really support them as best you can. Is there anything that you look back on and you wish that you had changed? I can't imagine you being that kind of person. I don't think that you would ever say I could have done anything better. But do you? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely that kind of person. Really? That's so interesting that you see me that way. Because <laughs> I feel that you 
are so organized that you do you have you you have your plan. Yeah, but the plan is only one aspect of it, and and mm. a plan is it's your ambition on paper, and sometimes your ambition doesn't always mesh with reality, and that's why you you have to look back and and see. So, what would I have done differently? I probably would have tried to start the request for proposal process for the claims administration sooner, but it was really difficult to do that. So I felt a little rushed in that process. But we ended up with a great partner in AFLAC, really an exceptional partner yeah. in AFLAC, uh, because we really felt the time. And, I, and the, I think the other thing which I had no control over is I wish I'd started sooner just as the CEO, because it, uh, we were already sort of under the gun. So when I started in March, which was as soon as I could start, I uh, I already had a, a 2021 deadline to meet with a whole bunch of things to do between March and then. Yeah. And so I, I kept thinking, man, I could really use another three months. <laughs> that first quarter that I lost... Through no fault of my own, I could really use it right now. There were some nights when I'm just like, if I could just magically add hours to every day, that would be the equivalent of at least a month. I would take it right now. Andrea, was, you you work so many hours as it is. You've had so many interviews on the radio, television interviews. You know, you've you've talked to magazines, you've talked to newspapers, you've done everything you can, webinars. What do you see the reason that you do all these things? Is it the education portion of it to really just keep everybody educated about Connecticut paid leave? That's part of it. And I think it's it's an essential part of it. And it's so much harder to educate people on a screen than it is if we had the opportunity to be out in the community. But on the other hand, being on the screen allows us to reach more people in a more effective way, but it doesn't allow us to get to all of the people, especially those that are on the other side of the digital divide mm. that I worry about a lot. Right. right? The Alice families yes. where you couldn't even get a laptop to make sure your kid could participate in school, much less have one where you have the luxury of sort of sitting back and learning about this program that you're paying into. So I continue to struggle with that and really try to figure out how can we do that more effectively, even as Omicron continues to spread and grow and and create significant challenges to the healthcare industry and first responders and healthcare providers. But in the end, I think we just have to just do the best that we can. You know, the other day our colleague Jessica was mentioning that we had something like 35,000 people visit our website. It's clear that people are hearing about it, and they may be hearing about it from family members or their coworkers, or they, like me, they may be seeing the billboard, you know, as they're they're riding around. We have so, so much. And you and Jessica have just done an extraordinary job in making sure that as many people as possible in the state have access to the information in a way that works for them. And I think that you and I both know and have met people that were like, I didn't even know this program existed. And that to me is like, wow, we still have work to do because some people won't pay attention unless they actually need the program. That's right. I know we have a number of employers that know it exists, but they have their understanding of how it works. And uh, that's not always the way that it actually works. Yeah. (laughs) Especially employers who are new to the entire family and medical leave program because there's the size of employer that this law now applies to has changed from 75 to 1. 
And now you've got employers with two people, one person, seven people who are trying to navigate a fairly complex law and then try to also navigate the paid leave part of it. It's hard. And it's easy for people to be critical of employers and say, well, they're just standing in the way of a benefit. But I try to see both sides of the story. And I imagine that if I worked for years and years and I had a staff of seven and then all of a sudden someone came along and said, hey, by the way, this really complex law is coming your way and all seven of them can take leave at the same time and there's nothing you can do about that. Right. I'm going to have a certain reaction to that. Yeah. So, right. So then I think rather than be frustrated and angry with employers that feel that way, I think it's more important to be sympathetic and try to get them the tools they need to comply and to navigate it. You know, I've run into small businesses that never knew this existed and they don't know how, how, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for, do I have to pay? You know, and it's very interesting. People don't know. And so it's, it's great to be able to have that educational part on our website, as well as doing webinars and, and this podcast and, and our social media, which we're very active in all of those things. So I had a friend in a big local hospital. She's the head of HR there. She texted me to ask me about COVID because she was on vacation during the holidays and 300 people were out with COVID that worked at the hospital. And she wanted to know if they could get paid leave starting in January. And I told her, well, COVID is not necessarily a reason for you to get paid leave. You know, it's not a serious health condition, but there are caveats to that. That's correct. And if you've ever had COVID, and I think I had it before I knew what it was and anybody, and I was just telling my husband last evening, I just don't ever remember being that sick. And I had no idea what it was. And I had all the symptoms and the loss of the taste and smell. So it's hard for someone to say to you that that feeling that bad is not a serious (laughs) health condition because it is You're right. It is bad. You're right. It is really bad. But it but it isn't in the sense that there's a there's a specific legal definition to a serious health condition. And that means that you're out for three consecutive days and you're under a doctor's care as an example, or you have to be hospitalized or you require continuous treatment from a healthcare provider. I won't just say doctors because there's APRNs and yeah. holistic physicians. There's lots of different people that provide health care. And we have a broad definition of what a healthcare provider is in the statute, too. So if you're receiving care from a healthcare provider and you're either hospitalized, you're out for more than three days, or you need continuous care under that, uh, in, under the auspices of that healthcare provider in order for you to recover, that is more likely to be considered a serious health condition than you just, like me, being flat on your back, seeing apparitions because you're <laughs> so sick, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, this is serious, right? But there's really... This is not good. This is not good. But there is actually a legal definition of serious health condition. Yeah. So it was, it's interesting because a lot of people think that COVID in itself will get them paid leave. And I said, no. With respect to the pay leave benefit, it would be unfortunate if you're ill enough to be hospitalized. That's true. But the way that the statute reads, that would actually most likely qualify you, uh, your illness as a serious health condition, and then you could apply for the benefit. But you don't want that severe of an outcome. You don't. Right. And you don't want the long hauler, you know, if there's there's heart problems or, you know, you could have continuing respiratory problems. That's right. I don't think any of us imagined that two years later, we would still be struggling with 
uh, trying to keep variants under control and still using masks and hand washing and not not that hygiene's ever a bad thing no. but we I don't think any of us ever imagined that we would still be adapting to a worldwide health crisis but it's amazing how adaptable we've become yeah it's it's very interesting well the applications went off really without any issues and yes. now it's the same for January 1st we open for benefits and it seems that the challenges are what now? You know, I think the challenges continue to remain to monitor the solvency of the fund because that's one of the criticisms we get is whether or not the fund will remain solvent. And we've had lots of studies. We don't have any concerns. But we want to continue to make sure that the demand for the benefit can be met by the available resources. And we also want to continue to be sure that those employers who've chosen to create their own plan uh, colloquially known as private plans, are implementing those plans pursuant to the policies that we approved at the Paid Leave Authority. We're not suggesting that any employer will not, but it can be complex. We know this from our own experience. Mm-hmm, it can mm-hmm. be a complex thing to do. And that people can really avail themselves of the benefit. And so I think the next big big challenge we have is continuing to make sure that people know that the benefit is available to them. And then educating employers. That's a continuous process. I think that that is going to be, yeah, the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, If someone is listening and they say, oh, this is the program that takes money out of my pocket. I won't need this. I'm healthy. How do you respond to people who say that? People say that to me all the time. I, I get it all the time, too. There will be people who will approach me and say, you know, I don't believe in the program. I don't, I, I'll never use it. But the reality is this. We don't know. That's why, even though we call it the Paid Leave Program, it is the Paid Family and Medical Leave Insurance Authority. Mm-hmm. So it is insurance. And in some instances, we pay into insurance and we are so fortunate that we never have to use it. But then there are times when we pay into insurance and we need it repeatedly. And that we just never know. So what I say to people is, you're absolutely right. You may never need it. And that would be a good thing. It would be a great thing. But we're all going to get older, mm-hmm. and we can never predict what's going to happen. And I always say this, especially for women, that when you go to get your mammogram, you're good for the next 364 days. Yes. There's a sigh of relief that comes yes. there. There's yes. like a little breath that you're like, oh, okay. That's right. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, the next year you go, even six months from the time that you went, things can change. Yeah. And we don't know. And the last thing that you want to be worried about, if you are facing a condition that that might be life-threatening, is whether or not my job is protected and whether or not I'll have some sort of income, at least for the first 12 weeks, when I'm probably dealing with the most acute part of what I'm facing. So I know that you know when I leave and I see the other women who you can tell have been asked to stay, I say a prayer for them. Because I know what their journey probably is going to be like. And then I'm then I say another prayer for being really grateful to be able to do the work that I do so that to the extent that we all can, all of us at the Pay Leave Authority, play a small role in providing that person a little bit of security as they walk down a journey that I don't think any of us can really understand. For skeptics who said, oh, you're going to run out of money. We are not going to run out of money. We've had many actuarial analyses done. 
And even if every single person who is eligible applied this year, we would not run out of money. And what people don't often realize is that this, if we see that the fund is being threatened financially, our board has the ability to adjust the benefit rate so that people may get less in benefit so that the fund can remain stable. And that really was a safeguard that was built in in case, in fact, the fund does look like it's not going to be stable. But there's no indication, even this is with a five-year forecast, that the fund is going to run out of money. And that's comparing it to funds and activity of states that have already had a longstanding paid leave program, like California and Washington State, who are very close to us. I mean, California is much bigger, has a huge population compared to Connecticut, has many more people paying into it, and they haven't run out of money. Nor you know, have they had to borrow from their state. They've not had to do any of that. And so we'll just continue to follow that path and just monitor it very carefully. You said that other states haven't had any repeals of this. No. I know that in 2020, there were many calls for repeal or postponement or uh, just the complete dismantling of the authority itself. And, and I understood what some of those motivations were. We were all panicked and had no idea what was ahead of us. We were living in the midst of a pandemic. Businesses were closing. Employment was an all-time high. It is a completely employee-funded program. There wasn't any sense that viability was on the horizon from some people's perspectives. But I never believed that. I believed that it was it was better to just continue to push forward, but not in a way that that we appeared to be insensitive to the extreme pressure that businesses were under, and uh, and the and really I think the unprecedented circumstances that workers were facing. Right. And so, with that sensitivity in mind, we just kept plodding along, you know, just moving along, and just kept saying. We're going to do this yeah. because people. If there's, if there, if anything that we've learned in this pandemic, if there is anything we've learned, is that this safety net is actually really critical for people. It is. So we we literally can't afford to set it aside. No. We can. Let's talk a little bit about the applications. Where I was sort of surprised that every single reason for leave was actually applied for. I was pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. I would like to see the numbers in some categories even go up a little bit more, with the exception of the family violence leave. I'd right. never like to see that number no. rise. But um, for military caregiver leave and exigency leave, I like the idea that families know that these are benefits that are available to them and that they're accessing them and taking the opportunity to take care of themselves and their families. I was very surprised to see that. And organ donation, so, too. And organ donation, Right. Well, thank you for being on the Paid Leave Podcast. Thank you. And thanks for being the first CEO of Connecticut Paid Leave. No one else will have that title. No, I I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're you're absolutely right. I guess it is trailblazing. It is trailblazing. Thank you so much for being here, Andrea. You're welcome. Thank you, Nancy. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been another edition of the Paid Leave Podcast. Please like and subscribe so you'll be notified about new podcasts that become available. Connecticut Paid Leave is a public act with a personal purpose. I'm Nancy Barrow, and thanks for listening.